Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining our live stream this morning. Before we begin, I do want to say Happy Mother's Day to all the moms. Ladies, we really love you and appreciate all the hard work and the labor of love you put into your families on a daily basis. May God bless you. Usually I tell you guys, take them out to a nice place to get something to eat, but we can't go anywhere. Maybe you can order in something nice, okay? But um, this morning we begin a new series, and uh, I don't think it's going to be a long series. But uh, let me start off by just saying this. I have to say that the last eight weeks has been, well, surreal. Surreal. A virus named COVID-19 and its spread has been used to justify the lockdown of millions of people, except for essential workers, forcing thousands and thousands of small businesses and some larger ones to close down, as our government officials told us it was for our own good. They assured us it would only be for a few weeks, just enough just until the infection rate uh, could be leveled off, or as they put it, the curve could be flattened so that our hospitals and medic medical professionals didn't become overwhelmed, resulting in the collapse of the entire healthcare system. Pretty scary stuff. This day assured us would happen if we didn't all immediately, you know, shelter in place. If we refused to do so, they warned us the result would be the death of millions of our most vulnerable citizens. Our elderly, consisting of our mothers and fathers, our grandmothers and grandfathers, you know, all the elderly, most vulnerable of our society would suffer. And so they guilted us into thinking that we'd be incredibly selfish if we didn't put our lives on hold and lock down the country until this pandemic could run its course. For their sakes, you know, do it for your moms and dads and grandparents and so on. And so we dutifully obeyed and shuttered our businesses and churches, our schools and parks, our stadiums and pools, our beaches, golf courses, gyms, and health clubs. And then we hunkered down until the storm passed and we could emerge from our bunkers and return to normal to our pre-COVID-19 lives. But then something unexpected happened. Some of our leaders decided to move the goalposts and began to tell us that we couldn't return to normal until a cure or a vaccine was found, a new metric from the flattening the curve mantra they had repeated to us for weeks. You see, it seemed that some of our elected officials became drunk on their newfound power to control us and found it, in fact, so intoxicating that they decided they weren't going to let it go, at least not without a fight. And uh, so this would continue. They decided they're going to continue to wield that power over us for the foreseeable future, for our own good, of course. It's always for our own good. And so these newly coronated kings and tin-horned tyrants decreed that we would have to stay under house arrest, until they, our new overlords, decided when it would be safe to return to normal. But they quickly qualified that statement by telling us we would never actually go back to the old normal. They patronizingly explained to us that that way of life was over and that we had entered a new normal, 
which folks should send shivers up the spine of any rational thinking, freedom loving American as to what that actually means. It's like we fell down a rabbit hole into an alternate universe where our country is no longer the United States of America, but has become a place where numerous states have become independent countries of their own, taken over by a handful of dictators that exercise absolute control over the lives, or at least they think they can exercise absolute control over the lives of their citizens. These autocrats seem bound and determined to uh, turn what's left of their states into dystopian hellholes, where the Constitution has been nullified and replaced with a truly bizarro world reality, where up is down, down is up, right is wrong, wrong is right. These state governors, mayors, police chiefs, and judges think it's perfectly good and just to release from prison hardened criminals, hardened criminals, like murderers, rapists, child molesters, back into society to walk among us to keep them from contracting COVID-19, while at the same time sending to jail an honest, hard-working salon owner in Dallas, Texas, for opening up her shop so that she and her employees could work to put food on their tables to feed their children, calling her very selfish. I think the majority of normal, rational people who have grown up in America can't help from being shocked by what has happened in our country over the last few weeks. Many, if not most Americans, are shocked because, shocked because we have come to take our constitutional rights for granted, rights that in our wildest dreams we would never have believed the state would or could take from us. And the reason we were convinced that the state could never deprive us of our constitutional rights was because we have been taught those rights were given to us by God and not by the state. The Declaration of Independence makes this very clear when it says in part, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Unalienable means irrevocable, that rights that come from God can't be revoked by man. Folks, a founding principle of our nation. And yet here we are. Here we are where some governors, all of them Democrats, by the way, are throwing around executive orders that take away our constitutional freedoms, like the freedom to assemble. I just read before I came here this morning an article that Governor J.B. Pritzker, governor of Illinois, has recently said that churches will be allowed to meet again without restrictions in maybe a year, maybe, could be longer. These governors maintain that their authority to impose draconian restrictions on their citizens in times of emergency override our constitutional rights until, of course, the crisis passes, okay, uh, which they are now telling us will only happen when a cure for the virus is found or a vaccine is developed. Let me remind you, just so you know, the vaccine for the Ebola virus took five years to develop 
and virologists still haven't developed a vaccine for the cure or the uh, uh, developed a vaccine or a cure for HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, though they've been working on that for 37 years. <laughs> so some of these states could theoretically be locked down for a while. Although people are pushing back, obviously. But God help us if one of these radical leftist Democratic people, these, one of these Democrats like Joe Biden or Andrew Cuomo or Gavin Newsom should uh, win the presidency. Their radical, authoritarian, constitutional crushing policies and executive orders would then go national. So where are we? Where are we? Or as I've named this series, what's next for America? Well, I personally don't think we can go forward as a nation until we first look backward and see where we've been. In other words, what our heritage as a nation has been. The dictionary defines heritage as, and I'm quoting, the background from which one comes. The background from which one comes. When we're talking about a nation, that would primarily mean uh, how that nation started and what were its founding principles. It's interesting that those who are globalists, which is going to be the government of the Antichrist, we're getting close, guys. It's interesting that those who are globalists are working hard to abolish nationalism and replace it with globalism. They realize that to accomplish this, they have to indoctrinate Americans at a young age to keep or to stop them from thinking of themselves as citizens of a nation and start them thinking of themselves as global citizens. Or in other words, to move them from national individualism to global collectivism, from citizens of America to citizens of the world. That's their goal. To accomplish their goal, they know they must separate people, a people, a nation, people in that nation, from their national heritage if they want them to start thinking of themselves as global citizens. And that must start early, again, early, in public school with the abolishment of their national history lessons. My sister-in-law is a grade school teacher in Southern California. And she told me several years ago that uh, schools in her district, but this was common throughout the entire state of California, had stopped teaching American history to the students. Folks, the same thing is happening all over our country. Why is that? Because you have many people involved in these schools and in the curriculum, common core, other things that are being taught to the students that are rooted in globalism. And globalists know that they have to uproot a people from their national heritage uh, if they're going to start thinking of themselves as global citizens. You can't teach uh, national history, which only en engenders uh, you know, a love for one's nation and heritage. You can't have that. And so they're working very hard to, uh, to uh, remove that element from the students' lives. Again, uh, abolishing the teaching of their national history. And uh, I, I just see this as this next step or one of the steps in us becoming a global society leading to the uh, one world government of the Antichrist and so on. But I believe, folks, that America is standing at an extremely critical juncture, a crucial crossroad. 
There are two totally different ideologies trying to pull our country in two totally different directions. And it's up to us as a people to decide which direction we will go. But again, how can we know where we are going as a nation if we don't remember where we've come from? Again, we must look back to the founding and the foundation of our nation if we ever hope to move forward. Woodrow Wilson said, and I quote, A nation which does not remember what it was yesterday does not know what it is today, nor what it is trying to do. We are trying to do a futile thing if we do not know where we came from or what we have been about, end quote. It's a nation, our heritage. Our nation today, I think, is living off the blessings of our forefathers' obedience to God. I think that God is continuing to bless America, not only because of the church in America. There are still wonderful, godly, God-fearing Christians throughout this nation who are praying, who are supporting the work of missions, who are, uh, who are working to get the gospel into the world. God honors that too. But I do believe, to a large degree, he is honoring all the sacrifices, the blood, sweat, tears, and so on, that our founding fathers and mothers put into this country to make us a nation. They sacrificed quite a bit, and God is honoring that. He is honoring that to a large degree, I believe. That even though we've turned our backs on God as a nation, I know there's a lot of godly Christians uh, in our nation, but I'm talking about our nation in general. How that, you know, we've embraced abortion and now a lot of states are making it more and more easy to kill children, even up to the moment of birth and sometimes beyond birth. We see that going on uh, and it's only getting worse. We see that homosexual marriage has been um, uh, recognized by the, uh, by the Supreme Court as a right. And so in many ways, we have turned our backs on God and... Um, why hasn't God judged us yet? We deserve it. Billy Graham said that if God doesn't judge America, he owes an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. So why hasn't God judged us yet as a nation? Well, I think Paul the Apostle hit it on the head in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, because the goodness of God brings us to repentance, or hopefully it does. I'll read it to you out of the NLT second edition. Paul said, don't you, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? This is why God, I believe, continues to bless us, because he wants to bring us to repentance. But we are in a grace period, make no mistake about it. We are in a grace period. But grace always comes to an end at one point, and when it does, judgment will eventually fall if we don't repent as a nation. We need to understand our heritage and get back to it, to the founding principles that made this nation great, a nation under God. For that, we have to travel back in time roughly 244 years to the year 1776. On July 4th, of that historic year in the city of Philadelphia, there was signed one of, one of America's most famous documents, the Declaration of Independence. It marked the birth of this nation, which under God, 
was destined to become one of the greatest, if not the greatest nation this world has ever seen. You know, people often forget in declaring independence from an earthly power like Great Britain, our forefathers made an unashamed declaration of dependence upon Almighty God. The closing words of this document solemnly declare, and I quote, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, end quote. Little did John Adams know how significant his words would be when he wrote to his wife Abigail on the passing of the Declaration of Independence and said, and I'm quoting him, I am well aware of the toil and the blood and the treasure that it will cost to maintain this declaration and support and defend these states. Yet, through all the gloom, I can see the rays of light and glory. I can see that the end is worth more than all the means, end quote. I wonder how many Americans still feel that way today, as so many seem willing to give up so easily um, our government, our nation, to become something our founders never would have envisioned we'd want to become, a socialist nation or something else. Eleven years after John Adams wrote these words to his wife Abigail, eleven years after that in 1787, when the Constitutional Convention had come to a close, a lady came up to Ben Franklin and said, Well, Dr. Franklin, what have you given us? The old statesman replied, You have a republic, madam, if you can keep it. And so our founding fathers created a republic for us to live in. Not a democracy, a republic. Make no mistake about that. Our founding fathers studied democracy and rejected it outright. They said democracy was of the devil. You hear a lot of our politicians say, we have to save our democracy. This is a threat to our democracy. We don't, we don't have a democracy. We are a constitutional republic. It's appalling how ignorant some of our leaders are with regard to our own form of government. Ridiculous. Disgusting. Our founding fathers hated democracy. They said it was of the devil. Why? Because a democracy is a rule by the majority. Where 50% plus one of the population can squash the will and ultimately the freedom of the other 50% minus one. It's basically tantamount to mob rule, where a simple majority can deprive the individual of their rights and property, and if it's a fanatic majority, can deprive people of their very lives if they oppose the majority. The ma if the minority opposes those in the majority, if it's a militant majority, and I think we're seeing a lot of factions in our nation that fall into that category, then it's not uncommon for a militant majority to begin to kill those in the minority who disagree with them. We are rapidly approaching that day in this country. Our founding fathers were too smart and too godly to fall for that form of government. They knew that democracy was given over to excesses 
and had within itself the seeds of its own destruction. Listen, they knew about Plato's warning that unrestricted democracy must result in a dictatorship. The very essence of democracy rests in the absolute sovereignty of the majority. Our founding fathers could never accept such tyranny because they recognized only one rightful sovereign over men and nations, not the state, not the majority, only God Almighty. And that is why they chose to make our nation a republic and not a democracy, immortalized in the Pledge of Allegiance, which did come much later, 1892, it was written, which says, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, listen, and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Now, the words under God was added later, 1954, uh, as a, um, a response to communism and how we were different. We were a nation not under communist state rule, but a nation under God. So that was added much later. But the intent was there from the beginning. Some things, you know, as we read, you know, in the founding documents, some truths are self-evident, the Declaration of Independence. Uh, our founding fathers, at the point where they first um, you know, brought this country into existence and wrote our founding documents, um, they didn't think they had to add that to uh, any, any um, motto or, or anything. Uh, even as late as 1892, uh, they didn't think to add a nation under God, all right? Later on, they did, though. But guys, again, the point I'm making is that from the very beginning, our nation was a republic, a republic, built upon at the absolute laws of God found in the Bible, not a democracy based on the changing whims and mores of society. Listen to me. In a republic, certain laws are absolute. Like you go to the Bible, God's laws are absolute, which means it doesn't matter if man likes them or not. It doesn't mean if a majority of the people decide that even though God says, uh, murder is a sin, it's a crime, thou shalt not murder. Uh, it doesn't matter if the majority of, of the people in a, uh, under a republic uh, don't like that. They can't just overthrow the law, throw it out, because that is an absolute law. Now, having said that, in 1973, the Supreme Court found somehow in the Constitution the right for a woman to have an abortion, which is murder, murdering the unborn. So now we're beginning to function like a democracy and not like a republic. That's why we're going downhill. You have many people in our government, in our nation, who are secularists. They don't believe in God. They don't love God. They despise his word. Uh, they want to get rid of us as Christians. This is one of the reasons I believe these governors are keeping these churches locked down. Uh, but they're kicking a sleeping giant, folks. Make no mistake about it. They are trying to keep us closed down so that we don't meet, I guess, in some of lame attempt to destroy the church. Uh, history teaches that when the church is persecuted, it rises up, gets stronger, weeds out the weak and uncommitted and the worldly because they're not going to want to stick around when they're be, uh, being persecuted uh, as members of the church. They leave. What's left becomes strengthened. The church rises up in revival and does some of its greatest work for the kingdom under persecution. Not fun, but wow. But I believe that... Uh, that uh, these governors think that they're hurting the church when in reality what they're intending for evil, God is using for good. Make no mistake about it, although I support those churches, and there are many of them. We're going to become one of them very soon. I'll tell you about that uh, in the days to come.
that are going to defy these governor's orders to not meet. There's coming a time, and many churches, uh, a, a whole group in California, have already decided May 31st they're going to meet for church regardless of what the governor, uh, Gavin Newsom, says. And we're seeing it in Illinois. We're seeing it in uh, Maine and in other places around the country because we recognize that if we want to be good citizens, we want to obey the, the governing authorities, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. But at one point, when we're just being suppressed unreasonably, and our rights being taken away from us, Acts 5.29 kicks in, we must obey God rather than men. I think that time is coming. In fact, I think it's here. But we talk about how we are a republic built on the absolute laws of God found in his word. Let me read you a couple of things that support that. James Madison, who was the chief architect of the Constitution, said, and I quote, we have staked the whole future of American civilization, not on the power of government, far from it. We have staked the future of all our political institutions upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, listen, according to the Ten Commandments of God. The chief architect of the Constitution, James Madison, said that. Noah Webster, you probably have a copy of his dictionary in your house. But Noah Webster, one of our founding fathers, said, and I quote, The religion which has introduced civil liberty is the religion of Christ and his apostles. To this we owe our free constitution of government. Folks, the idea that our founding fathers wanted our country to be a secular nation, free of God, and completely free from religion, and I'm talking about Christianity, is absolutely untrue. This is historical revisionism. This is why it's important to know our heritage, to know our foundation. Patrick Henry, who said, give me liberty or give me death, incredible statement, also said other things. One of them was this, and I quote, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded, listen, not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religions, plural, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ, end quote. John Quincy Adams, our sixth president, said, and I quote, The highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of, listen, Christianity, end quote. Now, let me just say this, and don't Listen carefully. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. We hear a lot of people say that our founding fathers wanted freedom of religion, which meant they wanted people from all over the world to come to our nation, Buddhists, Confucianists, Muslims, and so on, to practice their faith in freedom. That's what they intended. Folks, that's not what they intended. I'm not saying they would have, uh, would have uh, restricted or would have forbid people from coming to our nation to practice their religion. I, I don't want that. But that's not where they were coming from when they talked about freedom of religion. What they were talking about, and all you got to do is read some of the founding documents of, of their, some of their letters. When they talk about freedom of religion, what they were saying is they wanted a country where people could come and practice whatever denomination of Christianity they had adhered to without persecution, without persecution, 
whatever denomination of Christianity, not religions in general, but Christian denominations. They didn't want one favorite above the other. They didn't want one denomination persecuting another Christian denomination. That's what they meant when they talked about freedom of religion. But that's interesting to me, very interesting. Because today we're being told that our founding fathers, listen, wanted separation of church and state and that they put it into the Constitution. But did you know that the phrase separation of church and state does not appear anywhere in the Constitution? In fact, that phrase appears in no founding document, none. But so many Americans have been beaten over the head with that phrase for so long that when a group of Americans not long ago was surveyed uh, and asked about it, 67% of them said, yes, the phrase separation of church and state was in the Constitution. It is not. And that uh, very um, survey I read, uh, they surveyed uh, politicians. They surveyed lawyers. They surveyed very uh, educated people. And many of them thought that the phrase separation of church and state was in the Constitution. It is not. It is not. Many people believe that the First Amendment guarantees the separation of church and state. The First Amendment doesn't say that, nor was it ever intended to separate Christianity from our government. Guys, the First Amendment simply says, with regard to the subject of religion, and I quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, end quote. You see, what our founding fathers wanted to prevent was our government in America doing what their old government in Great, in Great Britain did by establishing a state church. They wanted Christian principles in our government, but they didn't want any one denomination favored above any other denomination, as I just said. So then you say, well, where did the phrase separation of church and state come from? Well, that phrase came from a letter written by Thomas Jefferson in 1802. You see, in 1801, the Danbury Baptist Association of Danbury, Connecticut, heard a rumor that the Congregationalist denomination was about to be named the official denomination of the United States, in other words, the state church. Well, this rightly concerned them. So they wrote a letter to then-President Thomas Jefferson expressing their concerns. Now, I went online yesterday and I read their letter and I, I read the letter of Thomas Jefferson to them. I wanted to make sure I had my facts straight. Very important that we do that when we present our case. And uh, I read their letter. It was very, um, you know, very uh, warm, friendly, respectful. They thanked him for being such a great leader. And then they asked him about this. On January 1st, 1802, President Jefferson wrote back to those Danbury Baptists, and in his letter, he repeated what the First Amendment said that, quoting him, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And then he added the words, thus building a wall of separation between church and state, end quote. Many, many secularists jump on that statement and use it to say that that proves that Jefferson and all of our founders really uh, wanted uh, separation between church and state. 
and yet they didn't put it in any of their founding documents. Uh, Jefferson mentions it uh, because he didn't want anyone to think that the that our government was going to uh, you know was going to uh, uh, enact a policy where any one denomination of Christians was going to be favored among the others. Again, that we were going to declare a state church. Jefferson says, no, we can't do that. But listen, even though the secularists try to say, well, that proves that our founders wanted a country free of God, secular uh, country, and so on, uh, quoting Jefferson, but all you have to do is study some of the letters of our founding fathers and see clearly that their intention when, when they talk about, uh, when Jefferson talked about, and, and, and they agree with him, of course, but um, as we study the letters of the founding fathers, we clearly see that their intention was that this wall of separation was going to be, or must be, listen, a one-directional wall designed to keep the government out of the church, but that the principles, principles of Christianity would always stay in our government. Let me say it again. The First Amendment was never intended to keep the church out of civil government. It was designed to keep the government out of the church. You see, our founders didn't want the government dictating to the church, but they did want the church influencing civil government because they built our government on biblical principles, which became, listen, the foundation of our nation, the Word of God. You talk about the foundation of our nation, it was the Bible, because our founders were, for the most part, godly men. In fact, 53 out of the 55 people that signed the Constitution uh, were evangelical born-again Christians. Can you imagine that? Our founders never wanted um, the, you know, the government to be separate from the church. They didn't want the, church, the government messing with the church, but they did want the church always to influence the government, because they built our government on biblical principles. In fact, guys, our founding fathers went to the scriptures to design our form of government. You realize that? The three branches of government, where'd that come from? Well, check it out. It came out of Isaiah 33, verse 22. The separation of powers in government, that comes out of Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Even tax exemption for churches comes out of Ezra 7, verse 24. I mean, that's just a few of the examples. Look, in 1892, the Supreme Court made a ruling and then made this statement. Listen to this, and I'm quoting. They said, our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based upon and embody the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. It is impossible that it should be otherwise. And in this sense, and to this extent, our civilization, our country is what they're saying, and our institutions, listen, are emphatically Christian. This is a religious people, speaking of Americans. This is historically true. From the discovery of this continent to the present hour, there is a single voice making his affirmation. We find everywhere a clear recognition of the same truth. These and many other matters which might be noticed add a volume of unofficial declarations to the mass of organic utterances that this is a Christian nation, end quote. you imagine the Supreme Court saying that today? Wow. Folks, it is right, it is true, that our nation was established, uh, that, that uh, our nation was established as a Christian nation 
one nation under God. One author writes, and I quote, In the summer of 1787, representatives met in Philadelphia to write the Constitution of the United States of America. After they had struggled for several weeks and had made little or no progress, the convention was about to break up in confusion and uh, dis uh, dissension when 81-year-old Benjamin Franklin rose and addressed the, the uh, convention. Here's what he said. He said, in the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we, we knew we were out, outmanned, outgunned, we had daily prayers in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. I mean, God was always intervening, he's saying. Superintending providence in our favor. Have we not forgotten this powerful friend? Do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing upon our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning, end quote. And that was what caused the Constitution to finally be hammered out and eventually ratified. Guys, this is how our Constitution, and listen, our nation was birthed in prayer, in prayer. Jamestown was one of the first permanent English settlements in America, and one of the first acts of Captain John Smith and his soldiers after they landed in Virginia in April of 1607 was to erect a wooden cross on the shore of Cape Henry. It was at the foot of this cross that the Reverend Robert Hunt led the, the 149 men of the, of the Virginia Company in public prayer, thanking God for their safe journey and recommitting themselves to God's plan and purpose for this new world. And Virgin, the Virginia Charter of 1606 reveals that part of their reason for coming to America was to propagate, and I'm quoting now, the Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness and miserable ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God, end quote. That, that's why they came here. Uh, there's a fantastic book. I don't know if it's still in print, The Light and the Glory. And uh, it talks about how uh, Christopher Columbus, uh, when he sailed over here, he was coming to find a nation that God revealed. His name means light bearer, Christopher, light bearer. And that God had revealed to him there was a nation, a country, a, a land over, over here to the, obviously to the, to the west of where he lived and uh, across the Atlantic. And that God was going to raise up a, a new nation in this land. A nation that would bring the light of his truth to all the regions of the world. The light and the glory. Wow. 
And so there were many who understood this, many that God had spoken to about this very thing. And um, many of those early settlers and pilgrims came over here, not to, uh, some did, looking for fortune. And that's, we, we hear that all the time. Many of them came because they wanted to have a nation, a land where they could worship the God of the Bible freely, uh, no state church, and in the process, bring the light of his truth to the indigenous peoples that were in darkness. Yes. The very purpose of the pilgrims coming to America in 1620 was to establish a government based on the Bible. The New England Charter signed by King James I confirmed this goal, and I'm quoting, to advance the enlargement of Christian religion to the glory of God Almighty. End quote. That's why the pilgrims came. Governor Bradford in writing of the Pilgrim's Landing, describes their first act, and again I'm quoting, being thus arrived in a good harbor and brought safe to land, they fell upon their knees and blessed the God of heaven. These were God-fearing people, not godless secularists that were trying to find wealth and, and, uh, and uh, so on. One of George Washington's early official acts was the first Thanksgiving proclamation, which reads in part, whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly implore His, His protection and favor. It goes on to call us to thankfulness to Almighty God for His goodness to this nation. Abraham Lincoln said, and I quote, It is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. Wow. I'll read you one more. We'll close. In the 1830s, the noted French political philosopher, Alex de Tocqueville, came to America to discover the secret of our greatness. These are his words. I'm quoting him. He said, The Americans combine the notion of Christianity and of liberty so intimately in their minds that it is impossible to make them conceive the one without the other. I sought for the greatness and genius of America, in her commodious harbors and ample rivers, but it was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless prairies, and it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world commerce, but it was not there. Not until I went to the churches of America and heard her pulpits listen aflame with righteousness. This is when our country was great, when men from the pulpit declared in no uncertain terms the word of God. They didn't placate. They penetrated with their preaching. It wasn't, see how we can be man-pleasers to bring people in. They fired out the truth of God regardless of who liked it or who didn't like it because it was the word of God. And they didn't mince their words when they declared it. He said, it wasn't until I went to the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her greatness and power? Returning to France, 
He summarized his feelings. He said, and I quote, America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great, end quote. I have thought about having MAGA hats printed up. The, one, the president inspired MAGA, M-A-G-A, means make America great again. I was thinking about having some printed up that say MAGA, make America good again. Because I know that the only way America will truly be great, and I'm not talking right now we have money, and although through this whole lockdown and shutdown of our society, our wealth may be gone forever. I don't know. It might be. God in his mercy might restore us. But I know this, greatness goes way beyond how much money uh, we have. Of course, we're $22 trillion in debt. We don't really have any money. How strong our military is. Greatness comes from within in our devotion to God and how we love him and live for him and honor him and keep his word. That's where the greatness of a nation really comes from. Righteousness exalted people. But sin is a reproach, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. America is great because America is good. If America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Next week, guys, we'll continue our series, What's Next for America? With the, with the a message I've entitled, If the Foundations Are Destroyed. So come on back and we'll look at that next time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your benevolence, Lord, your beneficence, I should say, for your love, your mercy. You took us from nothing and by your great power and grace made us the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. But like Israel so many years ago, who you took from obscurity and made them the strongest nation on the face of the earth in their day, they began to take for granted your blessings. They began to think that they were strong and uh, prosperous because of their ingenuity, their hard work, and so on. And America is falling into the same trap. Lord, forgive us. We pray, Lord, that you'd bring revival to your church. We pray, Lord, that you would work in the hearts of your people, that your people called by your name, that we would humble ourselves, seek your face and pray and turn from our wicked ways, that, Lord, you would hear our prayers from heaven, forgive our sins, and heal this land. Father, we give it to you. We ask you to bless this little series because we can't move. What's next for America? Well, that depends. First, we need to go back and look at where we've come from. Give us grace, Lord, to do that and to remember that our greatness was always because we were a nation rooted in your word, a nation that sought to honor you and everything we did in the beginning. Bring us back to that, Lord, in the future. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Mother's Day.